So even if your organization has an established uh, chief diversity officer, we can't put all the pressure or responsibility on the one individual. They need support to be successful. So that's where the DNI uh, committee really comes into play. And it should really be representative of the organization. So it should include, if you have employee resource groups, there should be a representative from each employee resource group that's part of that committee. You know, HR obviously needs to be involved, but marketing and finance, all the different business sectors need to be involved because it's something that's going to impact the entire organization as a whole. Welcome to You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. You are ambitious in life and in your career, but something is missing. You want to bring more of your passion to what you do, because let's be honest, you pour a ton into your work and it needs to mean more. I'm your host, Laura Eigel. I'm a mom, wife, PhD, coach, advocate, introvert, and indoor rowing fanatic. I'm passionate about living a life that's in line with my values. We'll give you the actionable tips and tools you need to lead with your values, make a difference, and have career success. The world needs more diversity and authenticity in the top jobs at organizations. Your leadership belongs there. You belong in the C-suite. What gets you up in the morning? What drives your decisions? What do you stand for? No idea, not even sure where to start? I use my values to guide my life and career. It's the basis of how I've built boundaries for myself and stuck to them. Are you ready to dig into what matters to you? Go to thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet. That's thecatchgroup.com to download your free values worksheet to get to your core values and take action on what matters most. Welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm excited to welcome our guest, Carrie Rosado. Carrie is the founder and principal diversity consultant for Divergent Consulting Group and has over eight years of experience in tech, healthcare, and education. Named among the 146 Inspiring Women Leaders in 2021 by Diverse In, she's a proud mother of two boys with autism and a neurodiversity advocate. She holds a bachelor's in computer science, a master's in business administration, and a DEI in the workplace certificate. She's also releasing a book in fall 2021 on inclusive leadership. She has worked at top tech companies such as Microsoft and Amazon to advocate for diversity and inclusion. Former school board trustee advocating for inclusive education, she's also a former board member for People Acting in Community Together Pact where she empowered the community to solve social issues related to housing, immigration, education, restorative justice, and led community rallies. She has mentored youth through Google CS First and Microsoft Teals, and even led and won hackathons at Women Who Code Silicon Valley. I can't wait for you to hear our conversation. We talked about how to open doors for marginalized leaders in the workplace, and the difference between building an inclusive culture within a company and within an educational system, and how to shift the narrative from compliance-driven versus true culture change. Let's get started. Well, welcome to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. I'm so excited to have you, Carrie. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. 
Well, I would love for you to tell us a little bit more about yourself. Can you tell us your story? Yeah, so I'm originally from Nicaragua, which is in Central America. So I am a, a bilingual Spanish speaker. That is my native language. Came to the States when I was four, grew up in the Bay Area. So San Francisco, California, Bay Area, and currently reside in Southern California now. And so growing up, I grew up in a bilingual home where we spoke primarily Spanish. Um, but early on, I started to notice the biases that exist in, uh, in our culture. As you can see, I don't look like what people assume a typical Latinx woman would look like. And so oftentimes people mistake me for a, a Caucasian woman, a white woman. And so oftentimes growing up, people would question whether my mother was my mother because she happened to have darker skin tone. And so I grew up with that. And then later on, traveling with my husband, who's Puerto Rican, shortly after the uh, 9-11 attacks took place, I remember this uh, incident where we were pulled aside and he was basically racially profiled and he was asked, uh, we were asked, we were pretty much tapped down from head to toe and we were checked and searched. It wasn't the best experience, uh, but I know that's something that happens and we let it play out. And so I experienced all these things. And now uh, being a mother of special needs kids, I also get to see the challenges that the disabilities community faces as well, both in the healthcare system, educational system, but also in, in the community as a whole. And so all of this really propelled me to really step into more of a leadership uh, roles. And so I started to get involved in the community, join a nonprofit board, it's called PACT and really started to advocate for education and other society issues such as immigration rights, you know, restorative justice and so forth. And later on from that, I got into the school board. And so I ran a campaign and won and got to serve on my kids' school board for a few years. So I've always been really active in the community. Really, uh, I enjoy advocacy and helping others and really just empowering people. Um, who have been marginalized throughout our history. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and how your life experience has really guided what you're doing now. So is, is that experience what really um, made you pursue more of the diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging space professionally? Actually, it was more my experience in tech. So my, my background is in tech. I hold a bachelor's in computer science. I've had the opportunity as um to work at top companies such as Microsoft and Amazon. And I started to notice a trend in tech in general, uh, where leaders and organizations are still, don't have a full understanding of what inclusion really means and aren't fully committed. Yes, they say we're inclusive and they have certain policies here and there, but when it comes down to it, putting it to practice on a regular basis and really making it part of the culture has been one of the biggest challenges. And so uh, at these two organizations, I worked in uh, training and certification and DNI advocacy. And so I really got to see firsthand the challenges that come with really shifting the hearts and minds of leaders to really embrace different types of people. And so I decided to dive into consulting and left Amazon uh, in March of this year in 2021 to really dedicate myself to really work directly with the leadership and really help them build more inclusive cultures. I love that. And can you tell me a little bit more about how you do that in your business? Yes. So uh, I break it into three tiers. I do support DNI in the workplace, but also in education. So I'm going to focus first on the workplace. So I start off by offering assessments because you have to have a baseline. 
to where to start. So it often helps if they already have an assessment, that's great. We can hit the ground running. If they don't, I can support them with that. But essentially I provide strategies that help the organization go from just a compliance mindset where they're kind of doing it, but they feel obligated to do it and aren't really into it to where they're actually really fully understanding DNI and really implementing best practices. So guiding them through that process and then also um, providing inclusive leadership training. So that's where the key lies. If the leadership, and I'm not just referring to the C-suite, I'm referring to all management levels, even middle management, even that new junior level manager, they all need to be trained in inclusion. And so um, they have to have a full understanding of what it means and what their role is in uh, implementing it. And so the only way they're gonna obtain that is through knowledge and education and training. So that's what the inclusive leadership program involves. In addition, we provide uh, workshops for employees and that's to help them get more engaged, get a better understanding of what inclusion really means as far as the different marginalized groups so they don't feel threatened. Something I've noticed as a consultant, there's this underlying fear of DNI. People get scared, um, especially if they lived a very privileged life. They might be fearful that they might get labeled uh, something perhaps racist or other terms, and that's not the purpose of DNI. So I really like to kind of create a level playing field and really clear up the understandings um, so people don't fear it and really learn to embrace it because it can actually help you learn to trust each other better, you learn to respect one another, and all that leads to better collaboration. And when you have great collaboration as a team and organization, you produce more and you can actually, you know, outperform your competitors. So it, it really, it matters. <laughs> it does. You've talked a little bit about kind of this idea of, you know, we think we're doing it as more compliance mindset, or it could almost seem as like performative, like you're doing the actions, but is it really making an impact? Is it coming from the right place? Can you give an example of kind of those compliance driven DNI behaviors versus if somebody's really walking that inclusion mindset within a culture of a company? Yeah, I was asked to come in and speak at an organization and they were just starting off with their DNI uh, practices. And so initially they had asked me to come in and speak for an hour, then they reduced it to 20 minutes. And I could tell, <laughs> um, I could tell they weren't really ready um, as an organization to really implement DNI, that they didn't have a full understanding of it. You know, I did what I could within those 20 minutes, but it's really hard to really, you know, educate someone and shift their hearts and minds to really embrace something with just a one-time training. And so that's the tendency I've seen uh, with a lot of organizations, they wanna do just a one-time training or they make it optional for people just to attend. And so when it's optional, you know, people don't feel as obligated to participate. And those that feel threatened by DNI will definitely not participate. And those are the ones that need to be, they're listening, right? And so uh, really understanding that if you're really willing to commit, you can make the trainings optional. They do need to be built into uh, the organization itself as part of their development. And um, the leadership needs to be trained, but also all the employees. So just something to keep in mind. And I love how you made the differentiator before. It's not just leaders in the C-suite that have to buy into it. It's literally every leader who's a people manager like and modeling those behaviors what kinds of everyday kind of leadership changes do you see in companies that are doing this well, who are implementing some of these trainings and um, doing it at different levels of the organization? 
So some minor changes you can start with is embracing the use of pronouns. That's a great way to show our allyship towards the uh, trans community. And so using it as part of your signature in your email or when you introduce yourself is really essential uh, because you may never know when at some point in your organization you might have an employee who is trans. And so it makes it more welcoming for them. Organizations who are inclusive empower women by providing uh, mentorship or leadership opportunities within the organization. They have flexible work schedules that really help those individuals who maybe have kids in school. And we know how early kids get out of school, and that can sometimes be a conflict, right? And so as a mom, you know, that's something I embrace when I see an organization that's really allows that flexibility or providing restrooms that are gender neutral. Again, or providing a mother's room for mothers who are returning to the workforce after having a child, you know, a nursing room. So it's all these little things that make it more welcoming and empower people are great ways to really do this. Awesome. Thank you so much. Those are really great examples. So we were talking just a little bit earlier about your new book that is coming out. Can you tell me about it? Yes. So it's called Inclusive Leadership opening doors for marginalized groups. And when I say marginalized groups, I'm referring to people who are part of groups that have been discriminated against throughout our history. So we've seen a lot of racial discrimination, but there's also a lot of uh, gender discrimination. And when I refer to gender, I'm not just referring to women, but also LGBTQ individuals, especially the trans community. In the book, I discuss also, um, you know, challenges with people with disabilities. I advocate for neurodiversity because I have children on the autism spectrum. And so I kind of walk leaders as far as uh, what they should be doing, how to show inclusiveness, even when they're in meetings, how to really be present and really not be afraid to share failures. Um, That makes you more human. When something goes wrong, it's important to really shift the focus on what can be done right for the next time around, and how as a team you can work collaboratively to prevent the issue from happening again. So just uh, really shifting the mindset as far as how we should be viewing issues when we encounter them. I love the title. I think it's just so important. And I feel like a lot of the times we talk about what leaders have to do as their own leadership growth, but I love the fact that it your book is really centered around marginalized communities. Yeah, exactly. And I also go into, um, I share different quotes that are inspirational regarding diversity. There's calls to action. I share resources as well that you can tap into books, podcasts, and whatnot. And so definitely check it out. It'll be out in December of this year. So 2021, December. And who is the book really written for? Is it specifically for leaders, for individual contributors? Any of the above? Uh, Both, actually. So even though it's called inclusive leadership, uh, you don't necessarily have to be in a leadership role to be an inclusive leader. Oftentimes, before people even step into leadership, you already start behaving like a leader. So start now. Yeah, it's really designed for anyone who's looking to really uh, level up and be more inclusive, Uh, especially because I go into uh, best practices as far as DNI when you're developing your DNI initiatives making sure you have your, those employee resource groups and how to work with them, when to work with a consultant, when to have your diversity council or committee and all of that. And so, yeah. Can you share what you think your the role is of like a diversity council, why a company should have one? 
regardless of the size of the organization, um, you need to have a group dedicated to really lead the effort and it can't rely on the shoulders of one individual. So even if your organization has an established uh, chief diversity officer, we can't put all the pressure or responsibility on the one individual. They need support to be successful. So that's where the DNI uh, committee really comes into play. And it should really be representative of the organization. So it should include, if you have employee resource groups, there should be a representative from each employee resource group that's part of that committee. You know, HR obviously needs to be involved, but marketing and finance, all the different business sectors need to be involved because it's something that's going to impact the entire organization as a whole. So there needs to be representation. I love that idea of work by committee. Even if your company is small, I think that's still something that can be done. And like you said, it takes the burden off of the chief diversity officer, or sometimes I think companies that are smaller, it still sits in HR. How does this play out differently in the education system? So the education system's uh, laid out a little bit differently. Um, I used to serve as a school board trustee, so I have an understanding of that. So, you know, you have your superintendent and then they have uh, assistant superintendents. One might be dedicated to HR section, finance, then the educational space. Typically in DNI for education, uh, you want to make sure you're also trained, not just focusing on training just at leadership. And when I say leadership, I'm also including board members. They need to be educated. Obviously, the superintendent and his cabinet and the administration and the district, but also the staff, because they're the ones and the teachers, they're the ones working directly with the students. But oftentimes organizations may forget they need to also support the students themselves and the parents, educate them as well. So making sure you're also creating DNI groups for students and parents and providing training and education, um, because that's really a well-rounded um, initiative. Your experience is um, so different in terms of being able to consult for both groups. It's interesting how it plays out differently in, in each system because each system is its own, its own environment. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like one versus the other in a business versus the educational system and the work that you do based on your values or is all of it really great work? Honestly, all of it is really great work. I do enjoy the educational space, I guess, because I still have school age children and they're still pretty young. They're nine and 11 years old. And so I do appreciate uh, working with schools, districts and really um, advocating for more inclusion. I mean, one of the things that I really resonated with on your website are your company values. How how do your company values guide the work that you do? So uh, my company values uh, include diversity, equity, and inclusion, and I'm a true believer that this really helps create a bond for employees and organizations to really foster more collaboration. It really just provides better partnership and really strengthens the organization as a whole, regardless if it's the workplace, higher ed, or K-12 district. Another value that really resonates with me is respect and trust, because that's where it all starts. You start off by respecting one another, but in order to respect one another, you have to understand each other's challenges. And unfortunately, the world we live in isn't equal for everyone. And so understanding that not everyone has the same level of opportunities or access is really empowering. And so learning to be more of an ally and supportive is important, but the only way to achieve that is through education, right? And so learning to respect and trust one another is important. 
And again, access, because we want to create a level playing field for everyone to have equal access to what they need to be successful and attitude. And I specify attitude because oftentimes people may say they're inclusive or want to commit, but then when it comes down to it, they don't always want to do the work. And so that can impact how successful any DNI initiative is. I completely agree. And I love, thank you so much for sharing your values. And when we say do the work, what can you, can you talk about what the work is? Um, I think people say, like actually say you need to do the work or they use the word the work, Um, but people, I, I don't know that everybody understands what the work entails. Yeah. So what I mentioned earlier also is oftentimes organizations have more of a compliance mindset. They feel obligated to implement DNI because that's what everyone else is doing or because of all the societal issues that have come up. And so they don't, they don't really have the right attitude or compassion and aren't willing to really um, put the full effort. And so they start to treat it as just of a checkbox. They'll have a training here and assume, okay, everyone got through that. Let's move on to the next thing. And so they don't really ensure that it's being actually implemented. Um, It's one thing to actually do the training, but also holding people accountable is equally important. And so when I say accountability, that also refers to everyone involved, the employees and the leadership, because it impacts the entire organization. And so we can't just have a training and then not expect an outcome out of it. So there should be some actionable items and there should be some accountability. Yeah. I love that you've also addressed accountability, right? Because I think um, a lot of people to your point, like they say, oh, well, we did that. We had the training, right? And, you know, everybody attended and then we moved on to the next thing, right? But remember we did have that training. So we totally did the work when at the end of the day, it's it's behavior change for an inclusive culture, that could look very different from one leader to the next. And are you holding your leaders accountable? If you're in the senior leadership team in the C-suite, what does that actually look like? And actually writing down behaviors like, okay, we, we currently work like this and that's what's acceptable. And, you know, doing this new work, this is what's acceptable and how we'll hold ourselves accountable to this new behavior. Yeah. So it's important to actually set goals. So whenever there's a training that takes place, okay, what is the purpose of the training? What goal are you looking to achieve? And then measure after the training, was there a change? If not, then maybe there's more training needed, right? And remembering that inclusion is a practice. So it won't happen overnight. It won't happen even in six months. It's a constant effort that we all need to work towards. And so having that understanding will help you really uh, lean in better and really commit. Do you see companies that you're working with, education systems that you're working with, do you feel like they're adding or tweaking to put like D&I within their core values or mission common or more frequently now? Uh, I have seen a rise in our school districts, for example, in uh, organizing committees dedicated to D&I, but because it's still very new, oftentimes they're still in the process of developing their goals and initiatives. And then after that's done, then you have to actually implement. So the implementation piece is the hard one that I think a lot of organizations struggle with. Yeah, this idea of, okay, well, it's part of our value system now, and or we had the committee. Um, oftentimes, I, I've seen in the work that I do just in like, or just not in specific DNI, but just like 
action planning committees. Um, the committee gets kicked off and then they meet a couple of times yes. <laughs> and then somehow they dissolve. How can you work with some of these DNI committees to, to get them the longevity and the sustainability to actually enact action? When you're working as a consultant with the, with the committees, um, you really want to set them up with actionable goals as far as not just what they need to implement, but also as a committee, what their responsibilities are. So they clearly understand making it clear that they need to meet on a regular basis, ideally monthly. Uh, would be the best for anywhere from an hour to two, depending on what needs to be covered. And really commit, making sure the people that are part of the committee have a good understanding. So educating them on what diversity and inclusion means and what their, re their role is in the process and making sure there's good representation, uh, making sure there's a student present, there's parents on the committee as well. You want that representation, making sure that they're representative of those who have special needs as well. So making sure there's teachers that are both gen ed teachers or special ed educators, you want that voice heard and their perspective. And so working with them collaboratively to make actionable goals and really set time, hard timelines as far as when they should be implementing them. I love the mention of like making sure that all voices are represented in these committees to really hold each other accountable also. Um, and the hard deadlines too, um, such an important part of behavior change for sure. Um, what other mistakes do you see committees or senior leadership teams make in the DEI space? That really varies. Oftentimes it comes down to, again, treating it like a checkbox and not really committing to it, meaning um, they'll do the one training and then move forward and just dismiss it. But the problem is studies have shown and statistics have shown that, you know, six months down the line, you'll completely forget whatever you did six months ago. And so if there isn't that accountability piece, that action piece where you're now that you've done this, what is the expectation? What changes or shifts need to happen? And then measuring that. So ensuring that as part of your initiative, there needs to be uh, measurable goals and you need to track them as well. And so you, you wanna, and if it's not shifting, then you need to shift how you're treating it. And it could be more accountability, making sure people, making these trainings non-optional, mm -hmm. make them optional. So that might be part of the reason why people don't treat them as uh, valuable because hey, if you wanna attend, great. If you don't, you don't. And so uh, if they don't see the true commitment from the leadership, employees are less likely to commit themselves. I completely agree in terms of the commitment from the leadership. And have you seen more companies or school districts put in accountability in like performance for senior leaders? Like this is so important that we're, you know, we're tying it to how we get paid um, if we don't meet our goals. Is that becoming more common? So keep in mind for, an, at least for an education, maybe that might work in the workplace, but for education, it's a little different. Keep in mind, school districts are public entities, they're nonprofits, they're 501c3s, and they work in collaboration when it comes to the staff, the teachers with unions. And so there's a lot of bargaining that goes back and forth. So it's a fine line that you walk. There's certain things that you have to negotiate. So it's not as simple and straightforward. Definitely the accountability piece can be there for performance in the workplace, for sure. But uh, in education, it's a little different that has to be negotiated with the union. And it really depends ultimately what they're able to negotiate. How do you find that accountability sticks? 
in uh, school systems without that kind of tied to performance piece? I think one of the biggest challenges that education faces is time. I've seen that because I'm part of several uh, Facebook groups dedicated for uh, education and DNI, and that's the biggest piece I've noticed. Oftentimes, uh, even though the initiative is there, implementing it is a challenge because teachers are expected to do a lot during the workday yeah. with the students in such a short period of time. And you know, with the whole COVID situation and doing like a hybrid model, and even still those that do in person, it's it's a lot. And so oftentimes time becomes a, a challenge, but I often like to remind people, you know, they are expected as part of their contracts to be involved in professional development. So make the best use of that time, that dedicated professional development time, stress it that they need to be present and make it mandatory. I mean, it's there for a reason. You're spending the dollars to bring in trainers, to provide that professional development. It needs to be taken seriously. Great advice. And I, I love that there's a different lens for education versus in business and some differences, but also some similarities, right? Time is a precious commodity um, and accountability is always hard. It is. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I would love um, people to be able to connect with you. I know that you have a podcast and your book coming up. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about where to find you and connect with you? Yes. Uh, one of the best ways to connect with me is through my website, my company website, which is divergentcg.com, uh, divergent with a Y. <laughs> and you can always just Google me, uh, find me on LinkedIn, Carrie Rosado, and I'll pop up. So Wonderful. Um, I'm really excited to dig into the book when it's released. I mean, we will also put um, your website in our show notes as well. Okay, perfect. Well, wonderful. Well, thank you so much for this really great conversation, Carrie. And I um, really appreciate you and sharing all of our experience, your experience today with all of our listeners. It's just such an important topic. And thank you so much for the work that you are doing. I want to thank you so much for listening to the You Belong in the C-Suite podcast. If you are enjoying this content, please remember to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. By leaving a review, you are helping others find this content. We will be featuring five-star reviews on air in upcoming episodes. Editing and support for the podcast is done by S&E Podcast Management. To get more tips and tools to help you live a life guided by your values, go to thecatchgroup.com. Keep your boundaries and take care. <laughs>